Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Grimace. As always, I'm your host, Simon. I'm here, one of my writers, in this case, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. There's several Matthews. This is Matthew Markham. Or as I always write him, like in my notes, Matthew M. <laughs> like, you know, you're a school and there's like, when I was a kid, there were like 17 Bens. Everyone was called Ben. And there'd be Ben A, Ben B, Ben C, B, Ben C2, because maybe there's two Ben Cs. It was like that. But I always think of Matt, Matthew Markham as Matthew M. <laughs> Fascinating, Simon. That's no, no one's here for this. Just get on with the bloody story, will you? Exactly how much pain can one man be expected to bear? That was the question that Cindy Best asked herself on the evening she first met her future husband, Carl Carlson, inside a country line dancing bar in Seneca Falls, New York in late 1992. This is the most American thing I've ever heard. Country line dancing. That sounds like something that only happens in America. I'm not even sure what line dancing is. Is that just people dancing on a line? On that night, as rowdy patrons filtered in and out around them and the sounds of music and conversation filled the room, Cindy sat with Carl, transfixed by the story of a man who had suffered so greatly throughout his life. According to Carl, he'd never been able to overcome the circumstances of his birth, never been able to break the cycle of poverty that so many in America face daily. Having once held high aspirations as a teenager, finding himself working in a factory in rural New York in his early 30s, was a great disappointment to be sure. As he saw it, he had been beaten into submission by a cruel world, and worst of all, less than two years earlier, the worst tragedy of his life had occurred without warning, turning his whole reality on its head. That was when, across the country in California, Carl's late wife, Christina, had perished suddenly in a house fire leaving him to raise their three children all on his own. Oh my god, that'd be so hard. Holy sh**. For some women, the sight of a single father drowning his sorrows alone at a bar and grieving the loss of another woman would turn them away, but Cindy saw past all of that. In many ways, she thought Carl's life was as inspirational as it was heartbreaking. She didn't see a beaten man sitting before her. She saw a man who had suffered so greatly, yet continued to soldier on. Yeah, I don't know, you gotta be a bit of a psycho to be like, oh no, no, I don't like that guy. <laughs> He's drinking because his wife died. What a loser! Loser! As the hours march late into the night, they continue to have the types of conversations that only come naturally to those under the influence. Carl continued to tell her much about his life, and while they certainly didn't cover all of the finer details during their initial meeting, Cindy would come to learn those details in time, as she quickly fell head over heels in love with him. This is what she learned throughout the nine-month courtship that preceded their marriage. Is this gonna be like Carl just made all this up? Because he's the he's the title in today's episode. So, like, I don't want to, you know, shit on Carl already. Carl? Kyle? Carl. Carl. Because it's like, also Carl. I always thought Carl was spelt with a C, but this is with a K. I just hope this isn't all made up. Because so far I'm like, oh no, poor Carl. But then it turns out, oh no, he's, he's, he's terrible. Because <laughs> we're doing a casual criminalist about him. The Tragic Life of Carl Carlson. Also, if your name is Carlson, why would you call your kid Carl? That'd be like my parents calling me Whistle Whistler. Why would you do that? Although Whistle's not a first name. It would be a cool name, though. Maybe if another kid, I'll call him Whistle. <laughs> What's his name? Whistle Whistler. Yes! Carl grew up on a farm not far from the bar where he and Cindy would someday meet, and he did so alongside his six siblings, five brothers, and one sister. When comparing his early years to those of the people we often feature here on The Casual Criminalist, Carl's childhood may seem somewhat underwhelming at first glance, but like all of us, his formative years provide valuable insight on his hopes and, more importantly, his fears. He was not abused growing up, as far as I'm aware, although he did claim that his father was a very strict man with a mean streak who often employed corporal punishment to discipline him and his siblings, not exactly a rarity among children born in the 19th 
1960s. One noteworthy thing, however, is the Carlson family's relationship with money. As a child, Carl worked alongside his family on their farm because that was the only way they were able to make ends meet. Fortunately, he always had a roof over his head and food in his belly, but generational poverty ran deep within the larger Carlson family. His father had grown up poor, his grandfather had grown up poor, and so on. Knowing this, Carl saw very few opportunities in his future and dreaded the idea that he might always be experiencing the same types of struggles he's seen his family live through since his birth. I mean, that's the kind of unfortunate reality, isn't it? Like, the odds of you being broke if your parents are broke is fairly high. The odds of you being well off if your parents are well off is fairly high. It's definitely something that perpetuates because you know there's the education and all of this stuff and i don't know exactly how it works but obviously it's like that isn't it it's a little bit broken also because he was always working he didn't have time to devote to his education and didn't feel capable of attending college however even if he had his family would not have had the resources to send him so it would have made little difference anyway yeah there's a good example of why because it's like oh well he can't study extra because he has to work on the farm after school and so he doesn't go to college and so he doesn't get a degree and he doesn't make as much money not that he could afford to go to college anyway well, I think in the UK, if you get into university and you're poor, they pay for it for you. There's like grants and bursaries? Is that what it's not like a scholarship based on merit, but it's a bursary, right? Where they give you money, like means assessed. Facing down a bleak future, Carl did what many young men in his position often do. As soon as he turned 18, he joined the US military, specifically the Air Force. This decision turned out to be both a blessing and a curse. At the time of his enlistment, Carl eagerly wanted to become a pilot, however his, his superiors had other plans for him. While he may not have had the chance to seek a good education, Carl was naturally smart and possessed good instincts, which the higher-ups within the Air Force immediately noted. They placed Carl within a special unit in North Dakota that was charged with transporting and safeguarding America's nuclear weapons arsenal. This meant that from a very early age, Carl was given a high security clearance and a large amount of responsibility. This was good for his career and certainly his wallet, but the job also came with its fair share of downsides. Yeah, I don't know, if I was like, well, how old was he, like 18? And they were like, you're smart, so you're just going to go look after the weapons. It's like, but I want to fly jets. And they'd be like, look, you got to be, you, you're going to guard the nuclear weapons, smart boy. And so I want to, I want to, and also like, if you learn to fly the jets in the Air Force, right, then you can leave and go be a pilot, which where you're going to make some proper money like a commercial pilot or whatever. As Carl himself tells it, he was one of few people in the Air Force who was authorized to kill civilians if they attempted to interfere with his work. Um, <laughs> what? If he was in the process of transporting a nuclear warhead and some random person attempted to stop his truck, he was authorized and obliged to run that man down or shoot him or stab him or do whatever else needed to be done to protect his cargo. Is that actually a rule? Like, surely there'd just be like, you have to do everything, just don't stop. And it'd be like, okay, so the rule is don't stop. Like if you're transporting a nuclear warhead, like someone runs out into the road in front of you, don't stop. And if they don't get out of the way, then they get splattered. It's not going to be like, yeah, you have to kill them. It's going to be like, just don't stop. While that may sound harsh, you have to remember that these are nuclear weapons we're talking about, and Carl was told that anyone interfering with his work could be a potential terrorist or foreign agent seeking to attack or kidnap him. Several times throughout his career, Carl was even made responsible for transporting the famous nuclear launch codes to Washington, D.C., personally placing them in the hands of some of the most powerful men in the country. If he failed to keep those codes safe, it could be disastrous for the entire world. As you can imagine, this put a substantial amount of stress on young Carl, who never thought he would be placed in such a vulnerable position. Wait, did the Air Force not think about this? You gotta think, like, if you're giving some guy, like, he's transporting the nuclear football, like, around the country, or the world, or whatever, you gotta think, like, well, you know, we gotta look after this guy, make sure he's okay, make sure the stress isn't getting to him, because he literally has the nuclear football. 
He began looking over his shoulder constantly, even in his off hours, and quickly developed a severe anxiety disorder that caused him to experience random and sudden panic attacks. These episodes eventually got so bad that Carl found himself unable to function, and as a result, he decided not to re-enlist once his time was up. However, there was also another reason for this decision – his first wife, Christina Alexander. In 1983, Carl met and married Christina while he was serving in the Air Force, but once Christina became pregnant with their first of three children, a daughter named Erin, they both decided Carl's work was too dangerous. Carl said that this was good for his mental health, but when he returned home to start his life with Christina, he once again found himself facing a life of poverty. As a way to help Carl begin earning money, Christina was able to secure a job for him at his father's sheet metal business in California, and the pair soon relocated there. But having to accept a job from his father-in-law, Art Alexander, hurt Carl's pride. He had always been seen himself as an independent person, so having to rely on his in-laws' money was humiliating for him. I mean, I don't know. Isn't this like an opportunity, like, don't let the gift horse in the mouth, take the job, and then just do a bloody good job of it? Like, I'm not super into nepotism or any of this stuff. But then again, it's like, if my family were like, I need a job, I'd be like, okay, <laughs> sure, go on then. But then, if just do a really bloody good job just go in and be like cool good opportunity now i'm gonna blow your socks off with how impressive i am because he does seem like quite an impressive man at one point altifa suggested that carl and christina move into one of his rental properties at no cost until carl was able to purchase a home of his own and this is where carl drew the line even though it would have been much cheaper to take art up on his offer carl's pride simply wouldn't allow it instead he rented a small house in murphy's california in the foothills of the sierra nevada mountains here he would house his growing family which had recently welcomed their son levi and their second daughter Kate. Wait, but he's not the the, the father-in-law isn't buying the house for you. He's buying it for his daughter who's going to live there with you. That's fine, isn't it? If I was in that situation, I'd be like, okay, sure. I mean, it's not my house, it's it's my wife's house. But it's nice that you get to live there. I'd be like, cool, no worries. Thank you, Dad. (laughs) Love you, Dad. Can I call you Dad? This house, which was actually a repurposed miner's shack, was small and underwhelming, but Christina got to work turning it into a suitable home as best she could. This is how the Carlsons lived, in a little shack on the edge of the forest. Money was always tight, and Carl never quite learned how to get along with Art or the rest of Christina's family, although medication did help him get his anxiety under control and the panic attacks became fewer and farther between. That's good. Overall, despite their struggles, Carl said that they were happy, but on New Year's Day of 1991, while all three children were under six years old, the family's whole reality came crashing down around them. That night, as the children were tucked into bed, Christina slipped into the hallway bathroom for a quick bath. She was dirty and exhausted after a long day and was hoping to find a moment of solace before heading to bed herself. But while inside the bathroom, the hallway carpet caught fire, trapping her inside. She smelled the smoke but could not escape the bathroom because of the growing blaze just beyond the door. How does the hallway heart carpet just catch fire? I know this is 1991. Yeah, it's far enough in the past for not to be like fireproof and everything. I remember when I was a kid, it was all like adverts like, don't smoke in bed and all of this stuff. And now it's like, everything's fire retardant, right? So like, if you drop a cigarette on it, it's not just going to burn your entire house down. <laughs> like now it's just not really house fires anymore. I mean, there are, of course, but back in the day, it was pretty common. And now it's just like, yeah, no, I mean, everything's just like designed not to catch fire because, well, fire is bad. Panicked by his wife's cries for help, Carl jumped out of bed, ran into the hallway, and began searching desperately for a way to smother the fire, but his efforts were in vain. Several days prior, the family's dog had knocked over a kerosene heater that usually sat just outside the bathroom door to warm the home on cold winter's nights. When this happened, kerosene had spilled and saturated the carpet and the floorboards underneath. This is where the fire started, and because Carl had yet to pull up and replace the floor in that spot, the kerosene acted as an accelerant, and the flames quickly grew out of control. Oh my god, I totally wouldn't think about that. Like, I wouldn't have kerosene like floating around my house because it's the future. Like, we have central heating or whatever, I don't live in a miner's shack. But 
if that spilled, if I did and it spilled over, I'd be like, oh God, better mop that up. And then I'd never think about it again. And people would be like, what about the kerosene soaking into the floorboards? And I'd be the what? It's the what? <laughs> that happens? I mopped it all up. God, I'm glad I live in the future. Otherwise, I'd have definitely died by now. For sure. Carl tried to make his way towards Christina, but the home was quickly filling with black smoke, choking him and making it difficult to see. Even worse, the flames had spread up the length of the hallway, making the home impossible to navigate. Each room was sealed off by a scorching wall of flames. Thinking quickly, Carl slipped out the front door, one of the few paths not cut off by the fire, and ran towards Levi's bedroom window in a full sprint. He pressed his face to the glass, and inside he saw his son coughing and gasping for air, trying to escape. Without second thought, Carl drew back his fist and shattered the glass with a swift blow. Shards flew inward, and balls of flames, followed by the rush of fresh oxygenated air, burst outward through the opening, singeing Carl's face in the process. Temporarily blinded, he reached inside and bored for Levi. He grabbed a handful of the child's hair, hoisting him to safety, and then he started towards the girls' room on the opposite side of the house. There, Carl found them in a similar situation. Once again, he broke the window and lifted them out into the night. As he did this, a fireball erupted, knocking him off his feet. With all three children now in his arms, Carl stood up and ran to the pickup truck, which he parked in the home's driveway. He placed the children inside, told them to keep their heads down and not look out, and then he ran back toward the home. He tried to reassure Christina, but his efforts were in vain. By this point, flames had fully engulfed the heart of the home, and the bathroom in which Christina was trapped had no accessible doors or windows from the home's exterior. Oh my god, I can imagine nothing more terrifying than this. This is crazy. When fire trucks arrived, they subdued the flames and breached the room where Christina was trapped, but they were too late. Thirty-year-old Christina Carlson had died from smoke inhalation long before they had arrived. Even if Carl had found a way inside, it wouldn't have helped, and he would have most likely lost his life as well. A short time later, paramedics pulled up outside the still smoldering home and began looking after the remainder of the Carlson family. They found that aside from Christina, Carl himself had taken the brunt of the injuries. When the fireball erupted from the girls' room, the heat had nearly fused his eyelids together. Oh! The children were shaken but unharmed. It was determined that the power cord from a faulty industrial work light, which had been plugged in near the hallway where the fire started, had caused the spark that ignited the kerosene-soaked carpet and floorboards. Yeah, dude, you should have accepted the house from your father-in-law. Instead, you're living in a miner's shack with, like, an industrial work light and a kerosene heater. That's not a place to raise a family. I mean, if that's what you've got, that's what you've got. But you had an option. It's not your fault, Carl. I'm sorry, it's not your fault. But it's like, god damn, it would have been nice if that had happened, wouldn't it? After that night, Carl took his children to a place where they would be safe and collapsed into a bed. He said he was so distraught that he couldn't move for over two days. After Christina's funeral, he packed up or sold his few remaining possessions and took his children to the airport and flew back to his home state of New York. He needed to be near his own family, who he helped could help him piece his life back together. Today's episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. Do you ever feel that money is just flying out of your account? <laughs> Only every day, Rocket Money. And I don't even... What's that for? Don't know. What's that? Ba don't know. Literally don't know. What are all these things? What, what did I just pay for? Look, often it's a bunch of subscriptions. Gee, tell it like it is, Rocket Money. Between streaming services, fitness apps... I don't think I have any fitness apps, but I, I have like many... When you count like movies, TV music, books, streaming services. Is books like streaming? I've got apps that like let you read unlimited books or magazines is another one. I guess that's a sort of streaming, but good Lord. I, it's endless, endless things. Now you can use Rocket Money to find out what subscriptions you're actually spending money on and cancel the ones you don't want anymore. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. See all your subscriptions in one place. Then you click a tap. Click a tap. You click or tap, and boom. 
subscription cancelled. Easy peasy. No long hold times with customer service. No emails where you're like, to whom it may concern. I don't want to use this app anymore. Please cancel it. And then maybe they'll get back to you. Maybe they'll let you keep your hard-earned money. Maybe. But with Rocket Money, it's one click. It's one tap. And it's gone. Boom. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and upsave its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in cancelled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Just stop it. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions. Go to rocketmoney.com slash casual. Rocketmoney.com slash casual. Once again, rocketmoney.com slash casual. And now back to today's episode. A fresh start. In 1993, Carl and Cindy Carlson were married, and over the next 15 years, they experienced a full life together. Thankfully, Carl had received a modest life insurance payout after Christina's death, which allowed him to purchase a small home on a farm for himself and his children. Cindy moved into this home, becoming a loving stepmom to Erin, Levi, and Katie, and eventually gave birth to a child of her own, a son named Alex. Throughout these years, the family raised livestock and grew their own food. They also had their ups and downs, as all families do, but money in particular was always an issue. Carl kept bouncing between jobs, never really landing in one place, and attempted to start his own business several times without luck. Thanks to the fact that their home was paid off, they always managed to scrape by. However, scraping by was exactly what Carl had always feared. To keep food on the table, he and Christy began raising ducks that they sold to gourmet restaurants in and around New York, and eventually, after many setbacks, Carl even found a niche, and along with it, some small amount of success. While continuing to work his day job at the local factory, Carl bred and raised Belgium draft horses. These are a breed of workhorse that were descended from the great horses of medieval Europe, which were used to carry heavily armored knights and men-at-arms into battle. They were very large horses, typically measuring up to 17 hands. Okay, I guess they were, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, is that literally like 17 hands? Uh, and weighed up to 2,300 pounds or 1.15 metric tons. Holy sh- it. These are big horses. How much does a regular horse weigh? Do horses really weigh that much? They were also very expensive. Each horse sold for anywhere between $10,000 and $30,000 in the 90s. Good lord. Once Carla paid the small fortune to purchase these horses and his investment began paying off, the family's money problems slowly became a thing of the past. Together they all worked on the farm, growing their own food and tending the animals the way Carl had as a child, albeit with much more financial success. He taught his children how to ride the horses, how to care for them, and he found that life and family was coming together for the most part. According to Carl's youngest daughter, Katie, when times were good with dad, they were really good. However, not everyone in the family felt this way, and Carl's eldest son, Levi, was one of those people. As a teenager, Levi and his father fought often over many things because Levi was the black sheep of the family, and Carl had little patience for those who didn't fall in line as expected. Even from an early age, Levi struggled in school, which caused Carl to believe he was squandering the education that he and Christy were working so hard to provide for him. Levi also smoked marijuana, drank alcohol, and listened to the types of music that Carl called a racket. He also dressed in early 2000s goth clothing and dyed his short, spiky hair blue. Although this was pretty normal behavior for a teenager, it enraged Carl to no end. Yeah, it's just like, edgy teenager's gonna be edgy. <laughs> You'll get into his 20s and be like, I remember my goth phase. It's like, there's not a lot of people who continue with that. It generally, like, ends. <laughs> Trying to correct his son's behavior, Carl disciplined Levi the way his father had disciplined him by using corporal punishment. Bro, it's like many decades later. It's not okay anymore. Carl said his hand had always been measured during these punishments, but Levi claimed that he was being abused. He called the police several times on Carl while he was in his mid-teens and dropped out of school to leave home when he was only 16. Levi stayed with relatives until he turned 18, and then he married and moved in with his high school girlfriend, Cassie Hon. 
For Carl, having Levi out of his hair was good enough. He claimed to love his son, but also admitted that he simply did not have the patience for Levi's teenage angst. In his mind, it was better for everyone if Levi stayed far away, and Levi was happy to oblige. Not long after marrying Cassie, Levi fathered two children of his own, both daughters. This, like many of the other decisions Levi had made throughout his early years, both disappointed Carl and widened the divide between them. Carl still did not approve of Levi and Cassie's relationship, and he certainly did not think having two children at such a young age was wise. Yeah, I kind of agree. Like, I think you should wait until you're a little bit older. Like, I, I, I had kids a little bit later, like in my early 30s. And I don't know, I can't imagine like 20 early 20 simon like maybe some people are just more mature than me and that's fine but like i cannot imagine early 20 simon trying to raise children it would be a nightmare <laughs> levi however loved his children and would do anything for them after learning how carl felt he stopped coming around the family farm entirely in his mind he had his own family to look after now and if carl didn't support that decision then he wanted nothing to do with him However, this mindset changed when, after five years of marriage, Cassie filed for divorce. Levi was still permitted to see his daughters, which he often did, but this unexpected change caused him to reconsider his relationship with the rest of his family. He wanted his daughters to know Carl and Cindy, despite Carl's flaws. So he began making an effort to repair their relationship. That turned out to be the biggest mistake of Levi's life. Oh my god, I have no idea where this is going, by the way. I have no, like... <laughs> Often whenever I say that, the comments are always like, oh my god, Simon, you're in for a horrible surprise. Oh no. Oh, the, the Chris Watts episode. I was At the beginning, I was like, is Chris Watts the bad guy? And everyone was like, dude. <laughs> yes. Tragedy returns. On the morning of the 20th of November, 2008, Carl and Cindy were preparing to attend the funeral of a family member when Levi pulled his truck into the driveway outside their home and stepped out. Despite the fact that Carl and Levi did not see eye to eye on many things, Carl knew that his son was an excellent auto mechanic, so he offered him work around the farm whenever possible. That day, the vehicle needing to be serviced was Carl's old Ford F-250, which was primarily used for hauling large equipment and supplies around the farm. This Ford range of cars, there's the Ford F-150, and very occasionally, you see them driving around Europe, and they look massive they look ridiculously large on like in like european cities and then you go to america and it's like the f-150 same exact car just looks small you're like park next to an f-250 or an f-350 or an x like 950 or whatever it is it's like it's the baby of them and it's such a massive car in europe in anticipation of Levi's arrival, Carl had jacked up the truck using an old railroad lift that he kept inside the barn for such repairs and removed the truck's front wheels. This would allow Levi to slide up underneath the front of the truck to access the underside of the engine bears he always did. As Carl walked Levi to the barn, Cindy finished getting dressed, and when he returned, they climbed into their own car and set off toward town. While they were gone, she and Carl attended the funeral as planned, met with the rest of their family afterwards at the reception, and then returned home. Wait, whose funeral? Why are they going to a funeral? Did we introduce like a funeral? Did I miss something? So they go to a funeral. Okay. <laughs> However, when they pull back into the driveway, they notice that Levi's truck was still there. This was unusual because Carl said the repairs should have only taken an hour or two at the most, but they had been gone for nearly four hours. As they parked their car inside the home's adjoining garage, Carl suggested to Cindy that Levi must have hit a snag and said that he was going to walk down to the barn to offer his assistance. Cindy then entered the home without Carl and began changing out of her funeral attire. She had no idea how soon she would be wearing it again. Moments later, Carl burst into the home, calling out to Cindy with panic in his voice. He was distraught and barely intelligible, but Cindy managed to understand that something had happened to Levi. Carl was shouting at her to call 911, and after a moment, she was able to piece together what had happened. The truck had slipped off the jack while they were gone, and Levi was pinned underneath it. Oh, dude. 
Cindy then grabbed the phone and made a frantic 911 call. She relayed what Carl had told her, and the operator suggested attempting CPR, but Carl refused, saying it was hopeless. Oh no, wait. Oh, he's... <laughs> I just assumed he was pinned under there, and he's like bleeding. He's like, help, help, help. But no, he's dead. The front of the truck had fallen onto Levi's chest, completely crushing it. His son's body was cold to the touch. It likely been pinned there for hours. When the police and paramedics arrived shortly after, they confirmed Carl and Cindy's worst fears. Levi Carson, age 23, was pronounced dead at the scene. If he's cold, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, is he okay? I know he was cold earlier, but maybe you've warmed him up a bit. You're like, no. They confirmed his fear, their fears. It's like, you know. You know. During their investigation, the police found nothing suspicious about Levi's death, and it was ruled another tragic accident. But over the next four years, Cindy would replay the events of that morning in her mind over and over again as she slowly convinced herself that something wasn't right. Suspicious Minds As the days and weeks after Levi's death dragged on, Carl and Cindy attempted to once again put their lives back together. However, this wasn't as difficult for Carl as Cindy thought it should be. At times he seemed sad, but overall he seemed largely unaffected by his son's death and in some cases happier. Cindy couldn't quite put her finger on what it was about Carl's attitude that bothered her, but she couldn't help but feel like she, Levi's stepmother, was more heartbroken than he, Levi's biological father, was. Additionally, in recent years, Carl and Cindy's financial troubles had slowly been returning, thanks in part to the 2008 financial crisis. Debts were piling up, and Carl seemed unable to pay them. However, after Levi's death, the calls from debt collectors suddenly stopped. She found out why when an insurance fraud investigator approached her and revealed that Carl had received a $700,000 life insurance payout as a result of Levi's death. When she confronted Carl about this, Carl confirmed that he had received the money and he had used a portion of the funds to pay those past due bills. Couple of things here. It's a bit suspicious. Like, how old was this guy? Like, he's a kid, right? He's just out of school. Early, late teens, early 20s. Why would he have a $700,000 life insurance policy? That seems very heavy. And then also, why wouldn't you tell your wife about it? That's super weird. When Cindy heard this, she was stunned. She had no idea that Levi had any type of life insurance, much less a policy for nearly three quarters of a million dollars. Yet Carl acted like it was no big deal. He handled the family's finances and didn't feel the need to tell her about such things, and this arrangement was normally fine with Cindy. However, a father taking out life insurance on his own child seemed unusually morbid. And not to tell anyone else about it seemed downright suspicious. She made her feelings on the matter clear to Carl, but he couldn't understand why she was upset. This concerned Cindy, but as she looked over the finer details of the policy, paperwork, she became even more concerned. The first thing that jumped out was the policy's date and beneficiary. It was signed by Levi and Carl on November 3, 2008, exactly 17 days before Levi's death. Uh, what? And Carl's name was, on was the only one listed. Wait, so they signed a life insurance policy which just benefits his dad, not his children or his family or anything that, just his dad. And it was 17 days before he died. That fraud investigator, no wonder they arrived. They should also definitely talk to the police about this because it's extremely suspicious. Like I always say, if you take out a life insurance policy on someone, you just got to be crossing your fingers for like a good couple of years that they don't die because otherwise it's going to be like mad suspicious. This meant that even though Levi had two daughters, Carl received the entire amount. The policy made no mention of Levi's children or ex-wife, which Cindy thought was strange due to Carl and Levi's rocky relationship. Plus, the amount was suspicious as well. Although the base policy was only worth $400,000, Carl had signed a supplemental add-on for accidental death, which increased the the amount by an additional $300,000. This is how the total sum of $700,000 was calculated. Why would you have an add-on for accidental death? 
I don't understand how that makes surely life insurance. The point of life insurance, right, is okay, your future earnings to pay for whatever your kids need until they should be financially independent at 18, right? That's the general like rule of life insurance. Or to help if you're married with mortgage payments on a house or whatever, to replace your income for a reasonable amount of time for those who are left behind. Why would accidental death why would the manner of your death make a difference? And why would you get more money? It's a bit weird. Such a high amount would have required a significant monthly premium, which receipts showed Carl had paid for out of his own pocket. It had cost him $470 for the first six months of Levi's coverage. This was money that Cindy knew they could not afford to spend. Seeking answers, she confronted Carl yet again with her findings and asked again why he had concealed the insurance policy from everyone else in the family, primarily herself and Cassie. She also stressed to him that this was a big deal, despite him once again attempting to shrug off the conversation. Hoping to put her mind at ease, Carl claimed that Levi did not want anyone else to know about the policy or the money because he did not trust Cassie to use the funds appropriately. He stated that Levi believed she would waste the money on herself instead of using it for its intended purpose, which was to care for his family in the event that something happened to him. Levi had put Carl's name on the policy because he knew that Carl would keep it safe and distribute it as needed. The reason Carl had used a small portion of the money to pay off some of the debts was because he and Cindy were at serious risk of losing their farm because Carl had listed it as collateral on one of his failed businesses. He would replenish that money in time, he said, once he could afford to do so. To Cindy, this answer was plausible, yet completely unsatisfactory. Since Levi's death, Cassie had made it abundantly clear that she was still struggling financially without Levi's child support payments. Carl offered her none of the money. Cassie had even asked outright at one point if Levi had a life insurance policy, but Carl denied it. Carl also had an explanation. He said that he had used some of the money to help pay Cassie in recent weeks. He had purchased food, clothing, and other household goods that he knew they needed, but had not told Cassie where the money for those supplies had come from for a simple reason. If she knew Carl had lied about the life insurance policy, he believed she would start harassing him and Cindy for the full amount. She might even file a lawsuit against them, which meant that they would have to use even more of the money to hire a lawyer. This would be bad for everyone. It was much better, Carl said, if he continued to keep the money secret as Levi intended and distribute it slowly so as not to raise any suspicions. Did this explanation make any sense? Well, no, not really. But Carl seemed so forthright and honest, so confident in what he was saying, that Cindy was able to convince herself that he must be telling the truth. The alternative was unthinkable. Yet her suspicions never fully went away. Can you imagine just being in that, being married to someone? It's like, yeah, no. I, well, yeah, that one time our son died in that accident that I think you might have had something to do with all those years ago. <laughs> it's, it's a hell of a thing to carry around, isn't it? As the years after Levi's death dragged on, Carl began making a series of large and expensive purchases that Cindy knew he could not afford on his own. He bought new farm equipment, new farm animals, and a truck for himself. He also remodeled their barn and completed some of the long-ignored repairs that their home had gone without due to a lack of money. As Cindy continued to doubt Carl in private, she also began examining their life together and reconsidering what she knew about many of the tragedies that had befallen their family over the years. As you may remember, we only briefly touched on the 17 years between the start of their marriage and the accident that claimed Levi's life, and during that time, many, many other incidents had occurred. Cindy had not suspected anything at the time, but in light of Levi's death, she began to question everything. The first incident that came to mind was the barn fire. Years earlier, when the family was still raising Belgian draft horses, Carl had purchased a mare and several young colts for breeding, as he had done many times before. However, this time, his plans fell through when he discovered that his new mare was barren. 
Shortly after this discovery, while Cindy was asleep one winter night in the master bedroom, she was awoken by Carl returning to bed in the middle of the night. Curious, she asked him where he'd gone, and he said he'd just used the downstairs bathroom. I think much of this and rolled over, attempted to go back to sleep, but was awoken again just a few minutes later by Carl shouting at her. He said he could see smoke billowing from the barn outside their bedroom window and a red glow reflecting off the snow in that direction. Cindy realized what was happening and called 911. He's burning to death his horses, isn't he? That's f***ed up, because his mare is barren. And he's like, oh yeah, if we burn them, then we'll get some insurance money, we'll be able to buy a new mare who is not barren. That's, dude, just burning the animals alive, what's wrong with you? When the firefighters arrived, they put out the fire, but discovered that all of Carl's horses had died. According to the fire investigators, poor wiring insulation and an old radio had sparked the flame that quickly turned the old rickety structure into an inferno. This would have been a major financial loss for their family. However, fortunately... And you can guess what? Carl had taken out an $80,000 insurance policy on the barn and the horses shortly before the fire. In another instance, Cindy recalled that shortly before Levi and Cassie filed for divorce, Levi had purchased an old fixer-upper that he intended to remodel for himself, Cassie, and the girls to live in. Levi didn't think the repairs would be too difficult or costly, but Carl said the home was a money pit. Before Levi could prove Carl wrong, the home caught fire in the middle of the night and burned down. Investigators once again blamed faulty wiring. Like, first one, okay, yeah, follow your wiring. Second one, where your insurance investigator be like, let's look into this a bit more thoroughly. I didn't see, like, any insurance claim this guy ever does. If I worked at that insurance company, I'd be like, yo, Bob, get out there again. Make sure everything's above board and look into it thoroughly, Bob. As Cindy slowly placed these events together in her mind, she tried to remain calm, but there were red flags everywhere that could not be ignored. Before long, she remembered something else very important. Carl's first wife, Christina, had died in a fire as well. Wait, you're just remembering this now? Like, after all this, I was like, hmm, interesting about these fires. Wait, didn't his first wife die in a fire? It's like, surely that's a major part of his life. <laughs> You'd be like, oh my god. <laughs> Carla told her it was an accident, because she really trust Carl anymore. Everything she thought she knew about him, about his first marriage, about his life in California, had come from his own mouth, a mouth she now believed told more lies than truths. Had Carl murdered Christina for the insurance money that bought the house she was currently living in, that had paid for her and Carl's wedding? The final discovery that sent Cindy over the edge came in late 2011. That was the year she discovered Carl had secretly used a portion of Levi's life insurance money to take out a $1.2 million policy on her life without her consent. Uh-oh, Cindy, it's time to go! <laughs> Knowing this, an onslaught of panic attacks and nightmares began plaguing Cindy day and night, depriving her of sleep, making her well aware that subconsciously she knew the truth, even if she couldn't bring herself to admit it. Carl had killed his own son for $700,000, had likely killed Christina for $200,000, and her life was now worth $1.2 million to him. She needed to run. Good thinking. Carl's two daughters were now grown and out of the house, but Alex, his and Cindy's only biological child together, was still living in a home with them. She needed to get him and herself to safety before something happened to her, before Carl killed her. Feeling like she was suffocating in her own clothes, Cindy waited for a day when she knew that Carl would be away from home, packed her bags and fled. Carl returned that evening to find an empty house waiting for him. When he called Cindy on her cell phone, she said that she would return only if he told her the truth. The truth about Levi, about the horses, about the insurance payouts, about Christina, and about everything else. Carl once again claimed ignorance. So Cindy hung up and switched off her cell phone. The past and present collide. While Cindy and Alex were hiding from Carl for their own protection, feeling alone and wondering if anyone would believe them if they came forward, there was another group of people across the United States who knew exactly 
what they were going through. Unbeknownst to Cindy, during the nearly two decades that she and Carl had spent living together in New York, Christina Carlson's family in California had been trying desperately to have the investigations into the 1991 fire that claimed Christina's life reopened. This is because they, as Cindy now suspected herself, had long believed that Carl was responsible for starting that fire as well. They didn't have proof, which is why their numerous letters to California state representatives and the local authorities had gone unanswered, but they had more than a few pieces of circumstantial evidence to support their theory. According to Christina's sister, Colette Busson, Carl and Christina's relationship had been nothing like the one that he had described to Cindy when they first met. In fact, the Carl that Cindy knew was completely unlike the Carl Colette knew in almost every way. This Carl, the old Carl, was a manipulative, controlling, abusive arsehat, the likes of which Cindy could never imagine. Throughout Carl and Christina's marriage, he had been very controlling of Christina and worked hard to keep her isolated from the rest of her family. This was one of the main reasons, Colette believed, that Carl had refused her father, Art Alexander's offer, to stay in one of his rental houses for free. Carl didn't like the idea of living in Art's houses because he wanted to completely remove Christina's support network and keep her reliant upon him. This was also why he chose the old miner's shack that Art and Colette were appalled by. It was located miles off the main road, which meant that Christina, who did not have a car of her own, was unable to leave when Carl was away. He also forbade her from getting a job in town or earning her own money for the same selfish, controlling reasons. When Colette and her family first learned about all of this, they were shocked and they were angered. But it didn't take them long to realize why Carl was treating Christina this way. His jealous streak stemmed from an aspect of his and her marriage that Carl did not like to speak about. When the pair first met, Christina was already married to another Air Force cadet, but Carl swooped in, won her heart, and convinced her to get a divorce so that they could be together. Carl always believed that Christina would cheat on him as well if given the chance. He was determined to make sure that that never happened. In addition to isolating her, Carl also made constant remarks about Christina's weight to destroy her self-esteem, something that he knew she'd always been self-conscious of. At one point during their marriage, Colette saw that her sister was facing, feeling down and decided to treat her to a glamour shot session, which in the 1980s typically involved lots of bright makeup, hairspray and jewellery. This was one of the few times that Colette was able to spend alone with Christina without Carl being there and it seemed to immediately lift her mood. She said that Christina had so much fun dressing up that day, but when Colette dropped her off at home with Carl, he took one look at her said she looked like a whore and made her wipe off the makeup immediately. That was the day that Colette knew that she despised Carl. However, it wasn't until he became physically abusive that she realized how much trouble Christina was really in. Wow, yeah, Carl painted a different picture, didn't he? Because it turns out, Carl seems like a mega piece of shit, in my opinion. One day while arguing, Carl pushed her with all his strength, lifting her off the ground and sending her flying across the room. Christina impacted hard against the wall and suffered some very painful bruising but was otherwise uninjured. When Colette learned of this, she suggested that Christina file for divorce, but her sister would not hear of it. Divorce in the 80s was still somewhat taboo in many parts of the country. And Christina, aren't they in California? I thought they are in California. Isn't that like the most progressive part of America? And Christina had already gone through the process once with her first husband. Being twice divorced was practically unheard of, and she believed that if she divorced Carl, he would leave the state and never be seen again. She would be stuck raising Erin, Levi, and Katie all on her own. Colette offered to take them all in, but Christina refused, saying that she needed to hold the family together, needed to make sure that her children did not grow up without a father. It's always like, yeah, yeah, definitely, keep the family together, that's good, that's good. But when the uh, the father's abusive, no, divorce is better, isn't it? <laughs> Furious, Colette wanted to confront Carl. He wanted to get her father involved, but she knew Christina would never leave Carl, and antagonizing him would only make the situation worse. She believed that, for the time being, Christina would be safe so long as she didn't upset him. Shortly thereafter, in 1991, the fire occurred. When Colette heard the news, she could not believe it. 
And I mean that literally. She did not believe for a second that the house fire was an accident. Carl was involved somehow, she told her father. And her confidence only grew stronger when she spoke to Carl in person. A few days after the fire, Colette, Art, and several other members of Christina's family drove out to meet with him. Just a side note, I really like the name Art. That's a really cool name. I feel like, what well, is it short for something? But I feel like people called Art are probably cool. They requested to see Christina's body, but Carl refused. He told them that she was not fit for viewing, calling Christina a crispy critter. What the f***? This term, crispy critter, stuck with Colette for two reasons. First was the coldness of the statement, but more importantly was the fact that her sister had not been burned. She had died from smoke inhalation. If anyone, like, that is so f***ed up. You'd be like, what did you just say? What did you just say about your wife? My sister? Crispy critter? What the f***? After this strange interaction, the family had their funeral and Carl left for New York. He was gone less than five days after Christina's death. He did not even allow Colette or her family to say goodbye to the children. The reason for this was never made clear to them, but Colette suspected that it may have something to do with what six-year-old Aaron had said to her shortly before the funeral to quote, Did you know mummy is in heaven with baby Jesus? I heard mummy calling out for daddy, and daddy didn't do anything. Years later, as a teenager, Erin herself would also question Carl's involvement in her mother's death. She remembered Carl building and extinguishing small fires outside the home in the days preceding the accident. In one instance, Carl had dragged the family's Christmas tree outside to dispose of it, but instead of throwing it in the woods, had poured gasoline over it and set it ablaze. When little Erin asked what he was doing, she remembered him saying that he wanted to see how fast wood burned in that weather. <laughs> okay. Erin also recalled that while she, Levi, and Katie were huddled together in Carl's pickup during the fire, Carl had simply stood and watched as the house burned. He didn't try to save Christina, and he certainly wasn't injured while rescuing them. She had no recollection of a fireball, an explosion, or anything else that Carl claimed had happened. When Erin later brought up her concerns to Levi and Katie, both vaguely remembered the events happening the same way. However, because they were younger than Erin at the time, their memories were not as vivid. They couldn't be sure if they were remembering what had actually happened or if their minds were playing tricks on them. Colette didn't know everything her nieces and nephews suspected, mainly because she had not seen or spoken to them since 1991, but she knew enough on her own. Wholly convinced that Carl had murdered Christina in cold blood, she and her family traveled to the site where the fire had occurred to conduct their own investigation. They documented the scene on a home VHS recorder as they sifted through the rubble and found the bathroom's only window. Christina's only possible means of escape had been boarded up using a large piece of plywood, and long nails had been driven into the window's frame. How the f*** did the fire investigators not notice this? If you recall, Carl told Cindy that the bathroom had no window, but that was not true either. According to notes taken during the initial arson investigation, Carl said that Christina had accidentally broken the window three weeks prior to the fire and had temporarily boarded it up to keep the cold weather out until they could afford to have it fixed properly. But Christina's family knew that this wasn't true. They had visited the home on Christmas, less than a week before the fire, and the bathroom window had been intact. If you're saying that, like... How how long do you think you're not going to get caught in that lie for? <laughs> they also noted that even though Carl claimed the board was supposed to be a quick, temporary fix, he had secured it using 17 long nails, which was way more than necessary. Eight or so, Colette said, would have been more than sufficient. As stated earlier, Colette and the rest of Christina's family tried to bring their concerns to the police, but they were ignored time and time again. They did everything they could, but eventually, they had to accept that Carl had gotten away with it. When they learned of Levi's death, they knew that he had done it again. The Sting Although Christina's family had long given up hope that Carl would ever face justice, Cindy wasn't quite ready to throw down the towel just yet. However, she was still very afraid for her life. 
She didn't want to go to the police because Carl continued to hold a $1.2 million life insurance policy on her, and she had convinced herself that he would try to kill her before their divorce could be finalized if she filed a complaint. She was terrified of him, but little did Cindy know she was about to face Carl, whether she was ready or not. Weeks earlier, Cindy had told her cousin Jackie Heimel of her suspicions and explained her reasons for not going to the police. After taking some time to process what she had just heard, Jackie called the police herself and told them about Cindy's situation, urging them to act before Carl orchestrated another tragedy for his own benefit. Surprisingly, this worked. Several weeks after confiding in Jackie, Cindy received a call from Undersheriff John Clear of the Seneca County Sheriff's Office. Clear told her that he had reopened the investigation into Levi's death and needed her to bring Carl to justice once and for all. Courageously, Cindy agreed. In early November of 2012, after being informally separated from Carl for over a year, Cindy called him on her cell phone to request that they meet in a public place. She claimed she was ready to put everything behind them, but before she could, she needed to look into his eyes as he told her the truth. She didn't care what he had done, she said. She just wanted him to be honest with her. Only then would she come home. A few days later, Cindy and Carl met at a local restaurant in Seneca County to talk. Wait, is this thing just going to be him admitting it to her? Being like, yeah, I killed him. And she's like, wearing a wire, bitch. As they did, Cindy wore a wire. Yes, provided to her by Undersheriff Clear. Surrounding the table where they sat, several undercover officers occupied the restaurant to overhear their conversation, close enough to step in if Carl became violent. Over the next hour, Cindy pressed Carl for information, and while she could not get an outright confession, she did get Carl to make several incriminating statements that left little doubt that he had been involved in Levi's death in some way. At one point, Carl said that Cindy didn't know the full story. He also said that he took advantage of an opportunity. After their conversation, Cindy and Carl left their restaurant separately, their issues still unresolved, and the following day, she asked to meet with him again. However, this time, as Carl entered the restaurant, under Sheriff Clear and several other deputies stepped in. They surrounded Carl and asked him to speak with them in private so they wouldn't cause a scene. They transported him to the Seneca County Sheriff's Office to begin what would ultimately be a nine-and-a-half-hour interrogation. For the first few hours, Carl stuck to his original story that he found Levi trapped underneath the truck after returning from the funeral. However, Claire and his partner had unearthed much more information than Carl was prepared to answer for. Although their questions first appeared to involve only Levi's death, Claire eventually brought up the 1991 fire that had killed Christina, the barn fire that had killed his horses, the fire that burned down Levi's house, plus even more fires that neither Colette nor Christie were aware of. For instance, before his first marriage, Carl had owned a car that he claimed spontaneously caught fire in his driveway while the engine was off, which was next to impossible. Let me guess, let me guess, he had an insurance policy on that car. And even if he didn't, it just seems a little bit like he likes burning shit. In total, Carl had collected insurance payouts, <laughs> yep, for six separate fires throughout his life, which Clear said made him the unluckiest person he'd ever met if all those fires were not the result of arson. It's like, yeah, number of insurance claims that I've made because of fire is zero. I think. I don't think I've ever had a fire that's destroyed anything that I've bothered to claim on. I have claimed some stuff on insurance. Like car stuff. I think I had a mobile phone nicked at some point, and I think I got money for that. Like travel insurance, that kind of stuff. To this, Carl agreed, still maintaining his innocence, but Claire did not stop there. He was also aware that, although Carl claimed to be ignorant of fire investigation techniques, Carl had been a volunteer firefighter in the 1980s. He'd helped to investigate several confirmed arson cases. Carl had tried to conceal his knowledge of fires all throughout his life, but Claire was one step ahead of him. Additionally, he also knew that Carl was a lifelong liar and who exaggerated almost every aspect of his time in the Air Force. Carl had not been part of a special team that safeguarded nuclear weapons as he claimed. He'd been a cadet that drove a supply truck. He didn't have special security clearance or an authorization to kill civilians that stood in his way. He was just an ordinary cadet that didn't have the gumption to re-enlist after running off with his friend's wife. After hearing all of this, Carl stood and began to physically back himself into a corner inside the interrogation room. There's a picture here. His deputies continued to demand answers. 
Finally, exhausted from the unrelenting accusations, Carl broke and admitted that yes, there was more to the story. He reaffirmed that Levi's death had been an accident, but that morning hadn't played out as he first claimed. In Carl's new story, he said that the trunk had fallen onto Levi before he even left the barn, and it had fallen because Carl himself had climbed into the cab to start the engine at Levi's request. When Claire asked Carl why he'd not called for help, Carl said that he knew Levi was already dead and he couldn't be saved. He was in a state of shock and could not accept what had just happened. The lift Levi had been working under was old, but neither of them ever imagined that it was dangerous. He was also embarrassed and unable to admit that he was partially to blame for what had happened that morning. Long-awaited justice. In 2013, Carl pled guilty to murder by depraved indifference, which essentially means that he admitted to engaging in conduct that creates an extreme risk of death to another person. The only reason his plea was accepted was because the prosecuting attorneys were not confident that they had enough physical evidence to obtain a conviction for first-degree murder. Most assumed the obvious, Levi was killed on purpose for the insurance money. Yeah, definitely not what we're saying, <laughs> just some people might think that. A Carl sentencing Seneca County Court Judge Dennis Bender said that he believed Carl was not fully human, as he hoped no ordinary man could ever do what Carl had done. Cassie Hahn, Levi's ex-wife, appeared in court that day to hear the verdict. She said the Carl's incarceration would provide her, her children, and many other members of the Carlson family with the comfort they needed to sleep soundly at night. Cindy, who had finally been granted divorce from Carl, agreed wholeheartedly. That afternoon, Carl Carson, age 53, was sentenced to 15 years in prison, the maximum possible sentence for murder in the second degree. But don't worry, his legal troubles were far from over. Thanks to the efforts of Christina's family in a Facebook group called Justice for Christina Alexander Carlson and Levi Carlson, California investigators reopened the 1991 fire investigation and brought new charges against Carl in that state. As prosecutors learned while reading through the old case notes, investigators at the time had discovered significant evidence of arson, and the only reason charges were not filed in 1991 was that the department didn't have enough funding to send an investigator all the way to New York to question Carl in person. For real? He burned down a house and people died. Had he remained in California, he would have certainly faced additional questioning and possibly charges for insurance fraud and homicide. Money was the only reason they had not pursued the case. On February the 3rd, 2020, a California jury convened inside the Calaveras County Superior Court after a seven-hour deliberation to read their verdict. Carl was found guilty of murdering Christina through arson. The judge gave him the maximum possible sentence, life without parole. Christina's mother, 78-year-old Arlene Meltzer, who had awaited so long to hear that verdict read, was in the courtroom that day. After learning that Carl would never walk the earth a free man again, she said, For 30 years we stood and waited. Right now, I'm just taking quiet time to help me get strong. It has finally come to an end. And that's where we end today's episode. Thank you so much for being here. If you enjoy the show, please do leave a rating or a review. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get this show. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, say hi in the comments, like this video, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.